0: Uh, Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 and stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, We'll be reading uh, starting in chapter 12, verse 4. It says, So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So Abram took Sari his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had accumulated in Haran, and they departed to go forth to the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it happened as he drew near to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Now behold, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and it will be when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that i may live on account of you and now it happened when abram came into egypt that the egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful and pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to pharaoh and the woman was taken into pharaoh's house therefore he treated abram well because of her and sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels came into his possession but Yahweh struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for myself as a wife. So now here's your wife. Take her and go. So Pharaoh commanded his men and men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife, and all that belonged to him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, we began to consider the generations of Terah. And as a part of this, we began the consideration of the lives of Abram and Sarai, who would become Abraham and Sarah. Thus far, we've considered Genesis chapters 1 through 11, covering a span of no less than 2,000 years. And as we now settle in to study the generations of Terah, with an even narrower focus on Abram and the subsequent generations that follow him, it is important to notice that the following 38 chapters of Genesis, uh, constituting three-fourths of the book, are dedicated to a mere 400 years of history. And that history is the account of the beginning of the nation of Israel. As A.W. Pink explains in the following words, one of the main purposes of Genesis is to reveal to us the origin and beginnings of the nation of Israel. And in the first 11 chapters, we are shown the different steps by which Israel became a, a separate and divinely chosen nation. In Genesis 10 and 11, the entire human race is before us. But from Genesis 12 onward, attention is directed to one man and his descendants. Further, as we saw last week in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, this narrowed focus of Genesis, this, this narrowed focus on this one man, Abram, and his descendants, began with Yahweh speaking. It began with the Sovereign Lord of all things, conveying not just information, But much more importantly, Yahweh spoke the words of blessing to this one man, Abram. And these words of blessing are the seeds of a covenant that Yahweh will cut with Abram in Genesis chapter 15, an unbreakable eternal covenant that is wholly dependent on the faithfulness of God to Abram. This covenant will result in the establishing of the future nation of Israel, born through Abram's grandson, Jacob. And it is through this line of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob that not only this nation Israel was born, but that the Christ, the the Son of God, the Savior of the world would also come. And so these words spoken by Yahweh consisted of two things. First, a call upon the life of Abram, which we find in Genesis 12, verse 1. And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin. And from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And second, this call was followed by the promise of a sixfold blessing for Abram. If he would obey the words of the Lord. Verses 2 and 3 tell us of these blessings. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Notice the sixfold nature of this blessing. First, Yahweh says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. This is particularly relevant considering that Yahweh has called Abram out of his own land, that Yahweh has called him away from his own kin, and that Yahweh has called him out of his father's house. In essence, God has called him to leave his own nation, But he does so with the promise that Abram will himself be made a great nation. Second, Yahweh says to Abram, And I will bless you. No matter what it seems, there is always a blessing that accompanies obedience to the commands of the Lord, even if in the moment it doesn't seem like that is the case. Third, Yahweh says to Abram, And make your name great. Again, this is a comforting thought for someone who has been called to leave all that they've labored for in an effort to make themselves great. Now Abram is being told, leave all that you've established yourself in. Leave all that you've invested in. Leave all that you've worked on to establish a name for yourself. Stop making your own name great. And instead, I, Yahweh, will make your name great. Fourth, Yahweh says to Abram, so you shall be A blessing. The point here is that when Yahweh accomplishes these first three blessings in Abram's life, the result is that it will make Abram a blessing to others. And the thought that comes to mind here is that the blessing of Yahweh upon Abram will be so full, so abundant, so, dare I say, prosperous, that Abram will have more than enough capacity to bless others. God's blessing upon Abram will be so great that it will extend to those around him. It will overflow to those that come into his presence. Fifth, Yahweh says to Abram, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. God tells Abram that he will extend his blessing upon Abram, not only in the sense of Abram being a blessing to others, but that those who bless Abram will specifically and intentionally be blessed by Yahweh as well as those who oppose Abram, those who would have the audacity to curse Abram will not only fail, but God will in turn curse them. And finally, the sixth blessing that Yahweh says to Abram is, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is really the crux of it all and the major theme of the rest of this book and even the rest of the Bible For the implication is that the promise given in Genesis 3.15 when Yahweh says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The implication is that this man Abram would be the next step of fulfillment of that promise given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. That Abram's subsequent generations would be the means through which the nation Israel would be born. And the one who had bruised the head of the serpent would come. Israel, a, a chosen people, set apart for the Lord, and not because of anything to do with them, but instead because it was the good and loving will and pleasure of Yahweh to do so. Israel, a, a chosen people that from before time began were destined by the Godhead to be the means through which mankind's greatest problem would be solved. Israel, a nation whose Messiah would fix the problem of sin, and thus a nation through which all the families of the earth would be blessed. And it all starts in our text this morning. It starts in Genesis verse four, Genesis 12, verse four. Because until this point, Yahweh has been speaking, but, but we've not seen anything of Abram's response. We don't yet know if Abram will do what Yahweh has commanded. So with this in mind, let's now consider the first point in our outline, Abram's obedience of faith. I'd like you to turn your attention to the first half of verse 4, which reads, So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him. The first part of this statement is really not all that significant if taken on its own. For Abram has gone forth before. We saw this last week in Genesis 11, verse 31, which explains the following. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went together from Ur the Chaldeans in order to go to the land of Canaan, and they came as far as Haran and settled there. So it appears that Abram has been going forth for quite a while. Terah and Abram left Ur to go to Canaan at the prompting of Yahweh. Stephen says as much in Acts 7, verses 2 and 3. Stephen says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abram when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. But they didn't do this in accordance with what Yahweh had spoken to them in Ur. What's more, like their Babylonian ancestors, they they were not obedient to the original creation mandate given to Adam and again to Noah, which was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. On the contrary, at the first sight of that which was appealing to their flesh, at the first sight of that which was familiar to them, At the first sight of the city, Haran, a place of pagan worship, they settled. But now, in our text this morning, starting in verse 4, something different is happening. Something new is brewing. Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him. As Yahweh had spoken to him. The difference here is that previously he was living according to his own selfish desires, but now he is doing what he is doing in faith-filled submission to another. He, he's doing what he's doing in obedience to Yahweh. Ha, have you ever read the words of the poem Invictus written by William Henley? I do not commend it to you, by the way but only quote a small part of it here because it so aptly captures the attitude of a soul that is living for self rather than according to what Yahweh has spoken. The last stanza of Invictus reads as follows, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Up until verse 4, all we've seen from Abram is this self-same attitude. That Abram lived like he was the master of his fate. That Abram lived like he was the captain of his own soul. But now, in verse 4, he's acting in submission to Yahweh. He is living with the conviction that Yahweh is the master of his fate. And that he is living with the conviction that Yahweh is the captain of his soul. And the obvious question for our own lives is, are we living according to this godless and pagan philosophy that we are the master of our fate and captains of our own souls like Abram had been or are we living like the Abram of verse 4 the Abram who is living as Yahweh has spoken with Yahweh as the master of his fate and captain of his soul formerly Abram's heart could care less about what Yahweh wanted but now Abram risks everything for what Yahweh commands at the root of it, at the bottom. The foundational difference was that Abram's heart was filled with saving faith. We learn more more about this faith of Abram's in in the epistle to the Hebrews. In chapter 11, we read the following definition for faith in verse 1, which says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the the conviction of things not seen. James Montgomery Boyce gives the following insight as to the nature of of faith he says faith is an active difficult and powerful thing if we want to consider what it really is it is something that is done to us rather than something that we do for it changes the heart and mind and while reason is wont to concern itself with the things that are present faith apprehends the things that are not present and contrary to reason regards them as being present this is why faith does not belong to all men as does the sense of hearing, for few believe. The remaining masses prefer to concern themselves with the things that are present, which they can touch and feel, rather than with the word. And so for the first time, Abram was no longer concerning himself with the things that are present, with the things that he could touch and the things that he could feel. Now, in verse 4 of our text this morning, Abram is concerned with the word, specifically the word spoken by Yahweh, in verses 1 to 3. Now notice a few verses later. In Hebrews 11, we see how Abram, in our text this morning, demonstrates his newfound faith. Hebrews eleven eight 8 tells us that by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. By going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed he obeyed. So faith produces in us a kind of obedience, which we also see discussed in Romans where Paul, speaking of Jesus Christ, says the following, through whom we receive grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name. The obedience of faith. Faith does not exist on its own in some ethereal sense. Faith is not some intangible concept that We talk about, but has no impact on the day to day. On the contrary, there is an obedience that accompanies saving faith. There is an obedience of faith. Now, we must be clear this obedience, sometimes also referred to as works, is not the reason why we are saved. Rather, our obedience or our works is the fruit of us being saved. Our obedience or works are not the grounds uh, nor the basis of our salvation. They are the evidence of it. We see this explained in, in James chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 18, which says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The Reformation Study Bible explains what James is getting at here when it says James challenges anyone who claims to have faith to demonstrate it, to make it visible. Deeds of obedience make up the only evidence of saving faith that is visible to the human eye. God can see the heart, but our only view of the heart is by the sight of outward fruit. And so in light of Abram's newfound obedience of faith, We should recognize that true believers, men and women who have been given this gift of saving faith, do not stay the same. They do not continue to live for themselves. Rather, they begin to live for Christ. Not perfectly yet. That's important. (laughs) But the one thing that their lives will be characterized by is this obedience that comes from their newfound gift of faith. Simply put, this means that if you are a believer, you will not continue to live like an unbeliever. Amen. Paul says as much in Ephesians 4, 17. Therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. He continues in Ephesians 4, to 24. He says to lay aside in reference to your former conduct, the old man which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So it is clear, this notion of carnal Christian is completely unbiblical. There is no room in Scripture for someone who is saved but is Not in some way, however minute, changed. There is no room in Scripture for someone who has faith, but no fruit of that faith, however small that fruit might be. There is no room in Scripture for someone who is saved, but continues to live like they're not. This idea that you can say a prayer or or fill out a card to invite Jesus into your heart, but but see no change toward holiness. Holiness see no realignment of one's allegiance to Christ, and instead you just keep on going like you always have, that idea is a lie from the pit of hell and has resulted in people thinking that they are saved when they're not. When someone is sovereignly and unconditionally given the gift of saving faith, they can be sure that it will change them. And not just In that justifying moment of newfound faith, but also in an ongoing, sanctifying manner, such that the trajectory of the life of a true believer is upward toward holiness and righteousness, toward a conforming of oneself into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be highs and lows, lows. there may be peaks and valleys along the way, but the overall trajectory will always be upward, gradually slowly even, but nonetheless you will become less and less like your old self, less and less like the old man, and more and more like the new man, until one day, when you have been delivered from this body of death, one day you will be made perfect in the likeness and image of Jesus Christ, a bride sanctified, cleansed, and prepared in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so, what is the trajectory of your life? If you make the claim of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, where is your obedience of faith? Can you look back and see how the Lord has changed you? Can you look back and see how you no longer struggle with that sin that you once struggled with, Can you look back and see how you've become more gentle and compassionate? Can you look back and see how the fruit of the Spirit seems to be more and more prevalent in your life than it did one, five, or even ten years ago? Do you act, think, walk, and speak in a way that looks more and more like Christ and less and less like the pre-saved version of yourself? I encourage you to examine yourselves and as Paul says in in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Abram, a man once living for himself, now in verse 4 has true saving faith. A faith that produced the fruit of obedience to go forth as Yahweh had spoken. And now in the next verses, we learn of the specifics. We learn of the, the manner, the conviction, with which Abram goes forth as Yahweh had spoken. Verse 4 continues, and, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So Abram took Sari his wife, and, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had a, acquired in Haran, and they departed to go forth to the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Here we see a number of details about Abram's obedience to God's command to go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. We see first that Abram was 75 years old when he started this journey. And the immediate thing that comes to mind when I read this is that it's never too late to start following the Lord. (laughs) You're never too old to change the trajectory of your life toward Christ. We also see that Lot, his nephew, went with him as well as Sarai, his wife. And in this we see Sarai's godly submission to her husband, to follow the godly direction in which he was taking his family. You can probably imagine that as much of a struggle as it would be for Abram to, to move in a direction without knowing the final destination, this would have been an equal, if not greater, struggle for Sarai. And yet she, she looked at her godly husband's conviction and followed him. This isn't so much about Sari's trust in Abram. Rather, it points to her trust in the Lord. And finally, we see that they took all their possessions which they had accumulated, including the persons or slaves that they had acquired in Haran. They didn't leave anything behind to go back to if things didn't work out as Yahweh had said it would there were no contingency plans, there was no nest egg. On the contrary, they were all in. And every resource given them by God was to be used in accomplishing Yahweh's will for their lives. Brothers and sisters, it is in this particular manner, it is with this level of commitment, it is with this kind of conviction that they departed for the land of Canaan. And I wonder if we as believers are moving in the direction that God has for our own lives and are are we doing so with the same convictions exemplified for us here by Abram? Husbands and fathers, do you know what God has called you to do? There is a purpose that God has given you as a man, a kingdom-oriented purpose. And the question is, are you about the business of God's call on your life? And, Are you leading your family in the direction of this call? Wives, are you submitted to your husband in such a way that you are following his lead for the direction of the family like Sari was? Are you on board with the plans that Yahweh has given to your husband? Are you trusting God to go in a direction where you do not know? A direction that your husband is convinced that God is taking you? Are you trusting the Lord for the details which may not be perfectly worked out, which impact your needs and your wants, which impact your children and their needs and their wants? These are no small things. But I encourage you to also remember that the God you serve is no small God. Finally, brothers and sisters, are you being good stewards of what God has given you? Utilizing your resources, your finances, your property, your job, your abilities and gifts, are you honing and applying these things to that which God has called you to? Like Abram, are you all in for what the Lord would have you do? Are you totally committed? Are you trusting the Lord completely that He will be faithful to His call on your life? Or, Are you preparing for the possibility that he might not follow through for you? That that he might leave you out to dry? That he might not be there for you? Brothers and sisters, again, these are heavy questions and worth much consideration in our own lives. And now we finally see at the end of verse 5 that they eventually came to the land of Canaan. They arrived in the place that God had told Abram To go. Abram heard the word of the Lord, the word which commanded Abram to go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Abram heeded this call and went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him. And verse 6 tells us that Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. And now that the Canaanite was then in the land, consider this scene. God has told Abram to leave everything and to go to the land which God will show him. And as we saw in verses two and three, God promised Abram a six-fold blessing if he would obey, and Abram does. He obeys, and with his household, he came to the land of Canaan. And verse six tells us that he passed through the land. Let me just ask, what has Abram been known for up to this point? He's been known for settling Abram was settled in the city of Ur. And then he traveled to Haran, where he again settled. But now he's acting different. He, he's not settling. On the contrary, he's passing through the land. He's sojourning. Something's changed. He, he's no longer living like his ancestors and is now fully submitted to the one true God whom he serves. Even in this land which God has shown him, he, he doesn't settle because that is not God's intention for Abram. That is what God wants for his subsequent generations, but not for the man Abram himself. So as Abram is passing through, he comes to Shechem and the Oak of Moreh. He comes across these landmarks in this land which God has shown him, and these landmarks are significant. As James Montgomery Boyce explains, he says, the text informs us that Abram passed over as far as Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moray. the mention of the terebinth of Moray provides an ominous note that must be brought into the discussion. Moreh in Hebrew means teacher. It may describe this place as some ancient shrine where instruction was given. A terebinth tree was often used for idol worship. Or in a place where oracles were declared by Canaanite priests, or simply the tree itself, the pilgrim thus found himself in alien territory where pagan ideas were handed down. God took Abram to yet another pagan place. And just to add insult to injury, we read that in addition to this, and for effect, the author of Genesis tells us now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Canaanite, this truly and exceedingly wicked people, a people who go all the way back to the man to the man Canaan, son of Ham, Canaan whom Noah declared a curse over in Genesis 9 because of his father's shameful behavior toward Noah, Canaan whom is the progenitor of those that this nation of Israel would one day have to go to war with in order to claim this land which will soon be promised to them. This is a foreboding fact if looked at apart from faith, apart from an understanding of the working of the hand of God in these matters. These circumstances could very well be a source of concern and discouragement for Abram. And so, it is in this specific moment, at this specific place of potential uncertainty, it is in the face of this pagan practice, and it is in the presence of these wicked Canaanites, it is in this moment when Abram might be wondering if God can be trusted Because after all, these circumstances don't really feel like God's blessing upon Abram. It might even feel more like God has cursed Abram, like God has even misled him. Well, it is right here in that moment that we read verse 7. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh, who had appeared to him. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram. Isn't this encouraging to you? Isn't it amazing to know that our God is not disengaged from his creation, like the deists claim, but on the contrary, our God is intimately involved in our lives? Isn't it encouraging to know that as we are moving forward in obedience to his will for our lives, that he knows our circumstances. He, he's orchestrated them, after all. The, the, the grounding, soul-comforting, faith-building fact that is most amazing about all of this is that all of this is going exactly as God intends. It may not seem like that to Abram, but that is the fact of the matter. God also knows our weaknesses. He, he knows how feeble we are. He knows how prone we are to wander. And he knows this about Abram probably better than Abram does. And so in the midst of these circumstances, Yahweh appears to Abram. And in appearing to Abram, Yahweh reminds, reinforces, and expands upon the, blessed, the blessing promised in verses 2 and 3, all in light of Abram's obedience of faith. And so Yahweh tells Abram, to your seed I will give this land. On the horizontal level, looking at what is going on in the circumstances around Abram, things don't look like they're going great. But when the vertical is brought into the equation, when, when Yahweh is involved, everything isn't always as it seems. Yahweh is about his work, and his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not ours, as Yahweh declares in Isaiah 55.8. This is helpful because when we are busy about the business of the Lord, when we are being used by God to accomplish His will for our lives, everything won't go as we expect. In fact, at times it may seem like nothing is going to plan. It may seem like you and I are complete failures in the midst of the turmoil and fluctuations caused by the sin of man going on around us, caused even by our own sin. For none of us are glorified, none of us are yet perfect. But God is not limited by these things. God is not constrained or even surprised. On the contrary, he is in complete control. And so what is Abram's response to God's appearing and giving of these words to him? What is Abram's Abram's response to, to God's promise to him that this currently occupied land that Yahweh has taken him to would someday be in the possession of his own seed? He worships Yahweh. Take a look at the end of verse 7. So he built an altar there to Yahweh who who had appeared to him. And he doesn't stop there. He continues on as a sojourner in the land and he maintains this heart of worship, pitching tents as a good sojourner does and building altars as one who's been changed by the grace and mercy of Yahweh. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west an ai on the east and there he built an altar to yahweh and called upon the name of yahweh and abram journeyed on continuing toward the negev this is a man of faith and this is a great example for us of what it looks like to live a life of faith in light of the god whom we serve but abram isn't perfect He's actually nothing special. He struggles just like you and I. And while he experiences great advancements in the kingdom and and seemingly the heights of saving faith, he also encounters valleys and failures and even unbelief along the way. And this is what we now encounter in the next section of our text this morning. Let us turn our attention now to the second point in our outline, Abram's disobedience of unbelief. Verse 10 reads as follows. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So far, Yahweh has commanded Abram to go to the land which I will show you. Yahweh said that he would bless Abram. Abram obeys, and the Lord leads him to Canaan, a pagan land filled with a wicked people, the Canaanites. Even so, in faith, Abram sojourns in Canaan and the Lord appears to him and promises this land to Abram's seed and Abram responds with worship. But now there's a famine in the land. And from verse 10, we see that it was a severe famine. And what is Abram's response? Does verse 10 say that Abram sought the Lord for his provision in this time of need? Does verse 10 say that Abram, with great faith, believing in the promise of verse 2, remained in the land and God prospered him? And quite the contrary. In this moment, Abram's faith wavered. Abram stumbled and lost his way. Abram forgot God's six-fold promise of blessing. Abram forgot that Yahweh would make him a great nation. He forgot that Yahweh would bless him, that, that Yahweh would make his name great, that Yahweh would make Abram a blessing to others. Abram forgot that Yahweh would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. He forgot that in Abram, Yahweh would bless all the families of the earth. All of this went out the window. And being prone to wander, he does. But wait. Abram was a man of great faith. I mean, he left all that he had in Haran. He brought everything with him and he wholly dedicated himself to the direction that God had given him. And he actually did it. He obeyed. This isn't the Abram that we just read about. This isn't the great man of faith That was such a great example for us. What happened? Well, Abram took his eyes off of the Lord. And when he saw the severe famine, he became afraid. And instead of turning to the Lord in faith for the answers, instead of turning to the Lord for the next step, instead of turning to the Lord for his provision, he looked at himself. And forgot of God's promises and he did this in unbelief. And he resolved to fix this in his own wisdom and in his, in his own strength. It is significant that the text says that Abram went down to Egypt. Very often in Scripture, Egypt signifies the world that is in opposition to the Lord and the temptations that it offers to the believer. This becomes more clear when we look down a few verses later at Genesis 13, 1, where we see that after Abram makes a mess for himself in Egypt, that he came back. It says he went up from Egypt to the Negev. So thankfully, Abram does not remain in this state of unbelief, in this state of not not living in and resting in the promises of Yahweh. But in the next 10 verses, we'll see what a mess we can make for ourselves when we forget about the God that we serve, And instead, live out our lives in our own wisdom and strength rather than leaning on Yahweh. Let me just make a point of clarification here as well. When I say unbelief, I don't mean that Abram was saved or was unsaved or or that he lost his salvation. Instead, what I'm saying is that Abram is a faithful man of God who is walking through a valley in terms of his faith. And this can happen for us as well. Lots of times this happens when we stop spending time in the Word, when we stop praying and reading His Word on a daily basis. This can also happen when we neglect to weekly gather together with the body to worship our Lord. These things are in place and are good for us as believers to faithfully practice because it helps keep us from the temptation that the world offers It helps keep us focused on the Lord in spite of our circumstances rather than letting the circumstances become our single point of focus. So if these things are not a priority in your life right now, as one of your shepherds who is responsible for the care of your souls, I implore you to make the necessary adjustments in order to ensure that that you are daily in the Word and praying and also prioritize being with us here each Sunday as we offer our worship to Yahweh together. Unfortunately for Abram and Sari, things have to get worse before they get better. And this begins to play out as Abram comes into the land of Egypt and Abram becomes afraid. Verses 11 to 13 shed light on this. They say, And it happened as he drew near to entering Egypt that he said to Sari, his wife, Now behold, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and it will be when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Abram's already started on the wrong foot because he's made this decision without any consideration of what the Lord would have him do in light of the famine in the land of Canaan. He left Canaan out of fear for the worldly circumstances that surrounded him. And now as he comes into Egypt, his fear only grows as the thought of what the Egyptians might do to him, at the thought of what they might do to him, when they see Sarai, who who is a very beautiful woman. He's doing what a lot of us do. When things don't go the way that we want, When, when we are living in a place of fear and all we anticipate is the undesirable circumstances before us, All he's thinking about is the worst-case scenario. And instead of finding a place of peace in the Lord, instead of living in light of the amazing blessings that Yahweh has given him in verse 2, he's living as if these fears, as if the worst-case scenario is the reality of his life when it hasn't even happened yet. So Abram comes up with a plan, and it's a doozy. He convinces his wife, sorry, to leave out one little detail. He convinces her to say that she's his sister, which she is, but just withhold that one minor detail, that she's also his wife. And his motive for this is so they won't kill him and so that it will go well with him because of her. Talk about being a terrible model for what it looks like to be a self-sacrificing husband for his wife. Can you see the mess that Abram's unbelief is getting him into? And isn't it amazing what fear can do in the heart of even such a man as Abram? Brothers and sisters, we are no less susceptible. We are no less susceptible for allowing fear to take over our hearts and forgetting everything that God has done on our behalf we are no less susceptible to live in light of our fears instead of living in light of the promises that god has bestowed upon us as believers in jesus christ promises such as i will never leave you nor will i forsake you hebrews 13:5 promises such as and peace of god which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in christ jesus Promises such as, and my God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. Promises such as, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. And by the way, these verses only scratch the surface of what we've been promised in Christ. Christ. In light of all of this, I challenge you with the following question, are we living in faith for promises like these, or are we living in unbelief and instead letting our fears reign in our hearts? And by the way, this question only applies to those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you do not, then these promises are not for you if you do not have saving faith, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, then all you have to live by are your circumstances. You have no place to take your fears except to yourself. Personally, in the experiences that I've had in my life, my circumstances and the fears that accompany them those are astronomically greater than any wisdom or any ability or any influence that I might have to offer in and of myself to overcome them. And therefore, without the greatness of Christ and the certainty of His promises, I don't know where I'd be today. My plea to those who are here this morning and haven't put your trust in Christ Jesus to save you from your sin, my plea is that you would do so This morning, acknowledge with a humble heart before Him that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior. Repent and turn from your sin and turn to Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. And if you do so, then these promises that we've been talking about will be yours too. Don't put this off. Don't delay. Don't wait until another day to do these things, for we are not promised tomorrow. So Abram conceives of this plan to preserve himself, and in the process puts his own wife at risk. Verses fourteen to fifteen explain what transpires in light of this. Verses fourteen to fifteen read as follows. Now it happened when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So they entered into Egypt. And the exact thing that Abram feared happened. They saw that Sarai was very beautiful and she was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now in one sense, this is actually worse than it seems. Abram, in his own wisdom, thought that if he called Sarai his sister instead of his wife, that they wouldn't kill him to take her because the cultural expectations was that they would negotiate for her. Abram was likely hoping to buy time Hopefully enough time that the famine would be over and that they could return to Canaan before the deal was finalized. Instead, they saw her, and contrary to this custom, likely because it was Pharaoh's officials that saw her, she was immediately taken. Verse 16 reveals what happened to Abram because of Sarai. Verse 16 reads, Therefore he treated Abram well because of her. And sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels came into his possession. But there's one problem. There's actually more than one. But from an eternal perspective, (laughs) from the perspective of what God intends to do through Abram in fulfilling the blessings that he bestowed upon him in verse 2, particularly the final blessing of all the families of the earth being blessed in Abram, we have a problem at this point, Abram has no children, and if Sarai becomes the wife of Pharaoh, then God's promise to Abram will not come to pass. And so in the remaining verses for this morning, we see that God intervenes. Verses 17 to 20 read as follows, but Yahweh struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of, Sarai's, because of Sarai, Abram's wife, Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for myself as a wife? So now here is your wife. Take her and go. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife. And all that belonged to him. Brothers and sisters, this is the grace of God over the lives of Abram and Sarai. And as we close, I'd like to read the following words, again from James Montgomery Boyce on this matter. He says, Fortunately, God does not permit his children to go their own way indefinitely, but eventually brings them back to their senses and to him. That is the good news. He does so by exposing their sin and thus causing them to suffer rebuke and deep humiliation. That is the bad news. One is tempted to say that God intervened in the whole affair for Sarai's sake, since the diseases inflicted on Pharaoh kept him from profaning the one who was in his power through no direct fault of her own. But the intervention was for Abram's sake also. Here was a pagan setting right a child of God. Pharaoh summoned Abram, rebuked him, and then expelled him from Egypt. It was a greatly subdued but wiser Abram who departed for Canaan. One commentator writes, It was not a pretty sight, but the effects of sin are never pretty. The good thing was that Abram went back to Bethel and resumed worship of God. Praise the Lord for his never-ceasing faithfulness to keep us. Praise the Lord for his never-ceasing faithfulness to rescue us from the effects of our sin and return us to a place where we resume worshiping our Lord like he did in the life of Abram. Amen? Amen? Amen. Now I invite Noel and the music team back up to lead us in musical worship as I close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the life of Abram. Lord, I thank you that Abram was a real man just like we are, Lord. He had his great moments and his flaws. And Lord, that we have the example of faith in his life and we have the example of your faithfulness to keep him, Lord. I pray that we would rest in the knowledge of your promises as we leave today. Lord, we thank you for your love for us and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.